You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Alex, good morning. Good morning, Kathy, and good morning to our listeners. Happy how are you? How are you? Oh, oh I'm, I'm well, and we how are again. you? <laughs> I'm keeping very well myself. I'm just uh, uh, feeling very motivated this week. I seem to be... Uh, getting through a lot already and it's only the start so it's been a productive few days for me which is really good you're getting up to speed now with working at home and everything sort of become it's going to be such a change when we go back to um, a normal way of life I'm going to miss a lot I think I've said this before but uh, although it'll be nice to see you face to face it certainly has uh, been um, it's been a fun ride doing doing this from home and learning about everything. And I yeah, feel really now that I've got a whole new skill set that I would never have had. Exactly. I feel the same way. I've been learning so much uh, in terms of uh, recording remotely and the different options that are out there. There's so many um, advancements there, and it's such a privilege to be able to incorporate that into what we do. Mm-hmm. It really has been. It's It's been... Uh, been a learning experience in so many ways. So as you can tell, our show today is taped. Uh, one day we'll go back to live broadcasting, but when everything is in, in good stead, we'll do that. But today's show is taped, so no opportunity for calling in, but please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC. And if you have any questions, any concerns, any topics that you would like us to try and cover, please feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. And do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, kathybiasse.com. So, Alex, today we have an outstanding guest. It's Dr. David Perlmutter. And we are going to be discussing building a healthy brain. So with that in mind, I just wanted to give a framework here in Canada, a few statistics about how mental health really uh, does impact Canadians. So I just wanted to go over a few statistics here. I found them completely outstanding. Um, it's, it's, it's an area that uh, I don't, I'm not as familiar with as I would like to be, although I am doing more and more research in this area. But as you will come to see with our discussion with Dr. Perlmutter, health is all related, whether it is we're talking brain health, whether we're talking gut health, everything is interrelated. So when you see or hear actually these statistics that I'm going to present to you, 
you are really going to maybe, hopefully, get a picture of how much more we need to do when it comes to taking care of our brain health. So here we go. And this is within Canada. So one in five Canadians, one in five individuals will experience a mental health episode this year. 50% of Canadians who have had a mental health issue will have had it before the age of 40. Um, $51 billion, that number is the annual economic loss attributed to mental illness in Canada. I mean, those first three things to me, when I saw these numbers, it was, um, you know, when you see the statistics, it really is impactful, I find. 54%, the increase in depressive disorders between 1990 and 2015, 54%. This one to me is extremely disheartening and really shows why we need to do better. Of all children, 20% of all children in adolescence suffer from some sort of a mental disorder. 20%, one in five children. Um, One in five Canadian children, only one in five of these Canadian children who need help get the help that they get. And Canada has the third largest suicide rate in relation to the rest of the industrialized world. Those numbers aren't good. No, they really aren't. And within the context of what we will be talking about with Dr. Perlmutter, we're going to understand, come to understand how our decisions about taking care of our brain health are truly in our own hands. And we need to do better for ourselves and we need to do better for our children. So bear these things in mind, please, and really do take uh, a good listen to the conversation that you will hear in a few minutes with Dr. David Perlmutter. And Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and five-time New York Times best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Dr. Perlmutter received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. In addition, he is a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by institutions such as the World Bank and IMF, Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, and Harvard University, and serves as an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Perlmutter's books have been published in 36 languages and include the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, with over 1 million copies in print. Other New York Times bestsellers include Brain Maker, The Grain Brain Cookbook, The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, and Brainwash, co-written with another guest of ours, his son, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, MD. 
He is the editor of The Microbiome and the Brain, authored by top experts in the field and published in December 2019 by CRC Press. Just an outstanding mind, an outstanding guest, and an outstanding speaker we have coming to you. Some of the, the key learning points that we talked about are key factors that impact brain health, what choices we can make to cultivate a healthy brain, and tips for navigating our current COVID world. Please do stay with us. This is an outstanding interview with Dr. David Perlmutter.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Just We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, our show is being taped today, so no opportunity for call-in. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three locations. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be with you today. Uh, me too. Actually, it's such a treat for me. So I had the great good pleasure of introduce, or interviewing your son, Austin, um, with whom you co-authored your new book, Brainwash. So congratulations on that. And as we talked before, congratulations on uh, cultivating such a wonderful person because Austin is just so great. He was really well, gracious. Uh, thank you. To thank to you, you on both counts. But I can't take, uh, I'm, I don't know how much credit I can take or my wife can take. I mean, uh, for his uh, his development, he's sort of bit, done his things his way over years, and has been a very big uh, important mentor uh, for me. So it's been I've been very grateful. Yeah, wonderful. Just a great guy to have on the show. So with him, uh, we took the approach of discussing decision making, and I thought you know to give you your due time that maybe we would uh, delve into creating the perfect brain. Um, with all things considered and genetics sort of uh, playing into everything, let's figure out how we can cultivate um, the best brain possible. So where would you start? I would start by saying, what a concept. I mean, right off the bat, what you just introed is absolutely paradigm challenging. I mean, we all have believed over the years that, you know, while there's a heart smart diet and women should have weight bearing exercises because it's good for their bones, that we've pretty, pretty much been left out in the dark in terms of our sense that any of our lifestyle choices can be influential as it relates to the health, the functionality, and even the disease resistance of the brain. And it turns out that we are absolutely arbiters of our brain's destiny based upon various lifestyle choices that we make every single day. We are highly influential in terms of charting how our brain is going to be working moment to moment and also in terms of what will the health and functionality of our brains be you know, in 10 years and 20 years. And mm -hmm. I think it's a very <clears throat> compelling kind of discussion uh, against the background of kind of worst case scenario, uh, which affects about 5.6, 5.7 million Americans right now. And that is this unrestricted decline in the brain that we call Alzheimer's disease. And as it turns out, uh, we again uh, have such an important role to play as being the caregivers and the parents uh, of our brain's destiny. So it's just the idea that you and I are going to talk about it today, I think, is, is uh, so very um, challenging for many people uh, because they haven't heard this before, number one. But my hope is that when it's all said and done, uh, that it is empowering to your audience and that uh, they'll uh, walk away from our time together with some ideas that are really in line with current leading-edge science that our lifestyle choices are highly influential. And I think 
perhaps uh, there's a, a few key bullet points, if you will, that are fundamentally important in terms of making sure our brain ages gracefully and stays with us uh, as, we, as we chronologically age. And not in any particular order, but certainly among those top few would be uh, the most recently recognized uh, player, and that would be the role of restorative sleep. Who knew? I mean, we live in a society that pushes us to stay up late, to get the job done, wake up early, get to work early, and really focus on being awake as much as we can so that we can succeed. And the reality is that, first of all, for success, whether it's in business or in academics, uh, success is far more likely in a person who's had a restorative night's sleep in comparison to those people who so-called burn the midnight oil. Number one. Number two, we know that lack of restorative sleep is a powerful risk factor for brain degeneration. And let me say, not just brain degeneration, but heart disease, cancer, and diabetes as well, all of which also filter down to affecting the brain. So who knew that mm -hmm. uh, this idea of getting enough and higher, higher quality sleep uh, is really one of the most important things that we can choose to do. Now, you know, what I'm saying is that uh, many of our choices affect the quality and quantity of our sleep. For example, do we engage in screen time in the evening? That exposes us to blue light. That blue light compromises sleep because it inhibits melatonin production. Uh, do we have caffeine late in the afternoon because we're running out of steam? Because last night we didn't sleep well enough. That affects our sleep going forward. Uh, is our room uh, cool enough, dark enough, quiet enough? And all of these things we can, to a significant degree, control. So I think to start off with, I'd say that, yes, we can chart our brain's destiny, and yes, uh, sleep is really one of the important, most important players. I think the next thing in terms of long-term effects upon the brain in a negative way is a very simple measurement that everyone can now do, even at home, and it is called blood sugar. Uh, we've known uh, for at least the past uh, eight to 10 years uh, from studies published in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine that blood sugar predicts risk of cognitive decline. Even blood sugars in the so-called normal range, as the New England Journal uh, revealed, uh, are actually correlated with uh, risk of cognitive decline in the upper range of normal. So what does that say to us? Number one, we have uh, a very important uh, lever to pull in terms of risk for dementia. And number two, we need to reassess what a so-called normal blood value is as it relates to our blood sugar. So when we're told that you know, if your blood sugar is up to 100, that's considered in the normal range. What the study in New England Journal of Medicine demonstrated is, you know what? That's not actually true. That blood sugars around 100 actually are still associated with an increased risk of cognitive decline. And these are blood sugars that many would still consider to be normal, that many would still consider to be, uh, you know, in the so-called normal range. So I think moving forward, what we should be discussing is what's not in the normal range, but what is optimal? What is the best sugar? 
And now that we're redefining that, I think we're learning that 85 to 90 is really a better target zone as it relates to ultimately reducing risk of type 2 diabetes, which happens to be a powerful risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, number one. And number two, looking directly at this correlation between blood sugar and risk for Alzheimer's disease. We control our blood sugar, oddly enough, by uh, the foods we eat. Who knew? Eat sugar and your blood sugar goes up. Eat more fat and less sugar and your blood sugar will go down. And it's not just the day-to-day -day blood sugar that we are thinking about as being relevant here. It's actually the long-term blood sugar that plays such an important role in terms of what our research is demonstrating. So I think many people are familiar with a blood test called the A1C. I mean, if you watch television, you see day in and day out drugs being uh, advertised that will lower your A1C. You can get your A1C below 7. Well, the reality is uh, that even at a blood sugar above about 5.7, 5.8, now you're in the risk for brain increasing brain shrinking, a shrinkage over time, and that's not going to do anybody any good. So like blood sugar, the A1C is something that we should look at in terms of what's an optimal level, not just what people would consider to be in the normal range. So, hey, between our diets and getting enough sleep, these are powerful uh, inroads, powerful options for us, very empowering in terms of really letting us choose how our brains are going to be functioning as we move forward in time. The, the overarching concept really is here. The brain, anything above our shoulders was for a long time thought to be in a world of its own, disassociated from that which is below our shoulders. And the, the research and the profound movement that you have had, as with other, other experts in their field, is to give us this concept that we are in control far, far more than we ever believed what was the main trigger, in, in your opinion, that brought above the shoulders with below the shoulders and gave us this continuity and a complete systemic idea of health? Well, with all due respect, I would say the, the challenge would be, which we can identify, is when did it change from being integrated? You know, throughout mm -hmm. the course of human history, the body was looked upon as an integrated whole, that everything was related to everything else. This idea that suddenly uh, integrative medicine is this revolutionary new concept, no, as a matter of fact, uh, that's how medicine has been uh, looked at uh, you know, throughout our existence. It's only really quite recently, in the past one or 200 years, that there has been disintegration, disintegration, uh, of this uh, ideology in terms of how the brain functions. We know that, you know, with the work of Descartes, uh, that the brain and the body parts were segregated into uh, individual systems. The lungs were looked upon as being a bellows, the heart was a pump, and the brain existed, as you mentioned, sort of on its own. We can sort of imagine that in modern day language as being kind of the, the computer that, that tends to run things. But again, uh, beginning with the work of, of Descartes and moving forward with time, certainly here in 
in America and other Western countries, uh, there's been a, uh, a purposeful segregation of the body into its systems and then into its uh, unique parts. And with that, we've had the development of specialists, of doctors who do one thing or another thing, and never do they you know, integrate uh, with uh, others. So that, for example, gastroenterologists look at the gut uh, from uh, the esophagus all the way down, and neurologists look at the brain and the spinal cord, and never uh, until quite recently would there be any consideration, exactly what you were mentioning, uh, that these two systems would at all share any interrelationship, any integration, if you will. Uh, and now, of course, uh, we all embrace the notion of full, uh, full integration within the body. And as it relates to those two systems, we talk about the so-called gut-brain or brain-gut axis, whereby the brain is influencing the gut moment to moment, and vice versa, the gut and the things going on in our digestive system are absolutely and fundamentally influencing how the brain works, how the brain interprets what is going on around us uh, moment to moment. And that is, is really a, a, quite a, a revolutionary concept only through the lens of modern medicine. Because again, as I mentioned, Integration has been the watchword uh, of how medicine was practiced until really quite recently. So now we're beginning to see this integration between, for example, the gut and the brain in terms of what people emphasize. But unfortunately, for the most part, we still see this incredible segregation uh, in medicine uh, between you know, different areas, different disciplines, different specialists who really tend to focus on just their system to the exclusion of all else. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately, in my opinion, proves to be a big disservice to the consumer uh, because we are then cutting ourselves off. We're limiting the number of tools in our toolbox in terms of dealing with issues. For example, as we look at, let's say, depression, as an example, affecting a, a third of Americans, a significant cause of morbidity and mortality, and certainly these days, uh, when we embrace the influence that the gut has on our mood, on controlling moment to moment our mood, on the levels of so-called neurotransmitters like serotonin, on controlling the set point of something called inflammation, which we know is fundamental for depression, inflammation being governed by events going on in the gut, when we begin to embrace that relationship, my goodness, we suddenly have such a, a larger playing field, so many more ways that we can be effective in helping individuals deal with depression and actually get through uh, their issues with depression than simply relying on medications that target a perceived imbalance of brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. What a narrow-minded approach that is, and truthfully, uh, it's almost completely ineffective. You know, it, it almost seems to me, if we, you know, getting more on the philosophical piece of this, if we are just a moment in time, perhaps this segregation and sort of taking apart the car in future will have shown a great deal of benefit, because 
specializing in the gut or specializing in the brain has maybe enabled some people to really dig deep in those areas. And now people such as yourself are starting to build things and put it all together in a different framework. I completely agree with you. I mean, uh, I celebrate the incredible research and dedication that uh, people have uh, pursued in terms of uh, looking at the trees. Uh, but I do think there's a time to step back from the trees and then embrace that this tree, this unique area that I have studied for so many years, published books and papers on, uh, but it's part of a forest. And I think that's really very important. In fact, I would say mandatory that what is the value of this incredibly uh, detailed work that a particular researcher has done in an area mm -hmm. But let's look at, look at that now in the context of the bigger picture. Because once you do that, uh, then you gain all kinds of new information about that particular area that you're studying. So uh, believe me, uh, there's no place for derogation of those people who are doing incredible work on very well-defined areas. But I think it's important to contextualize that very important information. I don't know in history if there's ever been such a time of such rapid growth and understanding in medicine. And of course, it's got to do with technology and so forth. But maybe it is now that in our Western world, we're starting to appreciate what isn't just intuitive. To me, there's a difference between we and the Western world want the science which is absolutely fine, and more of the, the Eastern world, or even in our gut, it's more intuitive. So now intuition is coming together with science, and it just seems that every single day there's a new discovery, a new pathway, a new neurotransmitter, a new receptor that is just, you can't keep up with. And I don't know if that's just me um, being on the very outside of things, trying to look in and, you know, knock no, on the door. No, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's very meaningful. Um, Louis Pasteur said that chance favors the prepared mind and meaning, you know, we do got to, we do have to do the homework. We do have to mm -hmm. do the research. We really have to, you know, unpack as best we can. Then there's a place for chance or intuition or a visceral kind of understanding of things. So again, chance, you know, kind of prepares us uh, for these epiphany moments when we suddenly uh, are able to make these discoveries and, and put, put dots together that were seemingly extremely disparate, as in, for example, this relationship between the gut and the brain. Who knew? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, who knew that? Well, okay, so we talked about it earlier. The gut influences the brain and influences mood. Therefore, let's take a step back and ask ourselves, well, what influences the gut? And then we look at perhaps what the biggest players are in terms of gut, health, activity, etc., and it's diet. So now we've connected diet to the gut and gut to the brain and brain to mood. That opens the door for connecting diet to mood when we, as I say, connect these dots. And, you know, when we now embrace that food changes our thoughts, it changes our emotions, it changes how we see the world uh, and research uh, by Dr. Emron Mayer, for example, uh, at, in California, demonstrating that he can change the mood, how people see the world, simply by intervening with specific dietary changes. 
that is powerful information. It's early on in the research. We get that. But what an opportunity, aside from writing prescriptions for, for antidepressant medications, for example, that we now can see glimmers of hope that modifying an individual's diet might improve or in, in, involve changing mood somehow that wouldn't expose a person to potential downsides or risks from taking a pharmaceutical. So it's it, true. Uh, it, it's, it's an amazing, you, you know, you talk and it just expands. You know, I work with cancer patients and I want to see that link between changing the mood and the outlook and the physiological effect on disease. And I know we're getting close. And, but that to me is when we can make that humongous jump from how you think and how you approach a situation greatly impacts outcome. That to me would be integration at its finest. That's right. And, uh, you know, the, the word finest is, uh, has a little bit of finality to it. I mean, who knows what would come after that? And then, so, uh, but I would say that now that we're beginning to understand mechanisms that underlie things like depression, we know that depression is not simply not having enough serotonin in your brain and therefore will inhibit the enzyme that breaks down serotonin that's what these SSRI antidepressants do, the Prozacs and Paxils, et cetera, Zoloft. But let's look at it from a more mechanistic uh, point of view, and that is we now understand that the mechanism of inflammation playing a very important role uh, in depression. Depression is an inflammatory disease. There's a great correlation between markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein and levels of depression. And, and there are many, many other examples. So we know that uh, depression is fundamentally an inflammatory disorder, and we know that most of this inflammation is coming from the gut. So this is a, yet another mechanism, aside from the neurotransmitter story, whereby things going on in the gut via the mechanism of inflammation can affect the brain and can affect mood. So what is it then? that leads to increased inflammation of the gut. Well, one of the big players in terms of gut inflammation uh, is leakiness or permeability of the gut lining. And we understand that that bumps up in inflammation. What leads to increased leakiness or permeability of the gut lining? And that has to do with changes in the gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. These changes are induced by medications, uh, by having a diet that's low in dietary fiber, that's high in sugar, that's high in ultra-processed foods, that's made worse by stress, by lack of exposure to nature, by not getting enough restorative sleep, who knew? So there are many things that change the gut bacteria such that the, the, our bacteria are not able to maintain the gut lining as well as they could, and this upregulates inflammation associated with depression. So this uh, is yet another mechanism whereby we can relate our choices, our choices in terms of the food we eat, the water we drink, the amount of sleep we get, the medications uh, that we take, whether we're in nature uh, or not, whether we choose to meditate or not, all of these things play a role in terms of the health of our gut bacteria and as such whether we have mood issues or not. 
Hard to imagine a decade ago that we would be discussing the fact that our hundred, hundreds and hundreds of millions of billions of gut bacteria, those little guys, are moment to moment affecting how we see the world around us. So uh, we do our very best to keep our gut bacteria healthy because they, they control our health. They control our destiny. They regulate our immune system. And it's, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. I, I, I just, as much as I hate to do it, I'm going to take a quick break here, everybody, and we will be right back to continue our conversation with Dr. Perlmutter. Changing my heart 
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a great conversation here with Dr. Perlmutter. We're just going to continue on because I don't want to stop this wave of knowledge coming at us. Does it matter when we choose to make these um, brain-building pieces fit into our lifestyle, Dr. Perlmutter? Is it too late or when is the optimal time to, to really impact the health of our brain? It's an excellent question because so much data has come out now indicating uh, that things that occur, measurements that can be made uh, in our 30s, 40s, and 50s uh, have a huge uh, play 20, 30 years later. Uh, As an example, one study from the journal Neurology demonstrated uh, that individuals who have a a higher waist-to-hip ratio, uh, in other words, a big belly, Uh, 20 to 30 years later have a significant increased risk for shrinkage of their brains. We know that uh, markers of inflammation measured in people more than 20 years ago predict cognitive decline. So that tells us that, you know, in our discussions, for example, of Alzheimer's disease, that these are discussions that are interesting for the 70-year-olds and the 80-year-olds because they're in the so-called high-risk group. But Alzheimer's doesn't just happen. It's not like you're walking down the street and bang, you know, something hits you in the head and, and you have an attack, uh, you know, like a heart attack. It just happens out of the blue. No, the, what we understand is that the stage is set for cognitive decline 20, 30, 40 years before. So is it too late if you're 70 or 75 or 80? Absolutely not putting the, uh, play, uh, the important parts into, the, into your regimen uh, should happen immediately, especially uh, with recent work showing that Alzheimer's, as a matter of fact, is reversible in some patients. But I think the emphasis needs to get to the younger population, uh, people in their 20s and 30s, because the choices that they are making then manifest when they're 60, 50, 60, 70 years of age. It's much like sun exposure. Uh, you know, the skin cancers that develop when you're, you're in your 60s, for example, aren't because last week uh, you went out and played golf and forgot to bring a hat. Those changes that happen to your skin and risk for skin cancer happen because of all the, the beach time we spent in our teenage years and in our 20s. And it's much the same as it relates to the brain. So when should you start? Well, I think in the 20s and 30s is reasonable But as a matter of fact, what we do in our adolescence sets the stage for our health in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. We're seeing much higher rates of overweight and obesity and even flagrant diabetes in adolescents. And as a matter of fact, we're seeing it even in uh, children now, you know, rampant rates of, of obesity and overweight and even what we used to call adult onset diabetes. We, we threw that term out the window. Because when you see something in a 10-year-old, diabetes is no longer fair to call it adult onset uh, for these children who uh, are engaged in poor lifestyle choices, many of which are not necessarily their choices, but unfortunately, 
uh, their parents and uh, things that happen at school influencing their health outcomes. So I would say that then children, uh, the choices made for children play out over time and can be associated with increased risk for brain uh, decline, cognitive decline. Well, as a matter of fact, in getting back to our discussion about the role of the gut bacteria in terms of inflammation and understanding that diabetes, overweight, Alzheimer's disease are all inflammatory dis uh, diseases, we have to ask ourselves, well, when do we have influence over the health of the gut bacteria? And it turns out that not only the type of birth that we experienced, whether it was a vaginal birth or a cesarean section, has a huge effect on the development of our gut bacteria, but even how uh, our mothers behaved influences our gut bacteria while before we were even born. That the choices mothers make in terms of their nutrition and certainly other things like alcohol, cigarettes, and medications plays a role in changing uh, the ultimate gut bacteria of their newborn. So now we've taken it from paying attention in our 30s and 40s to our teenage years, to our adolescent years, to young children, uh, to early childhood, and even prenatally. So it, it matters. It matters mm -hmm. plenty. I think the most influential uh, time period would be in terms of children. Because it's not just the choices they make, but the habits that become ingrained in them uh, that will then tend to stick with them uh, for the rest of their lives in terms of what makes for good versus bad choices. Well, here's a question that's off on a tangent, and you may not want to even tackle it. Oh, um, I'm fine with it. Go for it. <laughs> we've got these kids now that are out of school and that are really having a period of time that they're not being develop socially, that they're not learning things. Do you find that or this period of time will be impactful upon young children, this hiatus from the world, basically? Uh, I think it will uh, to some degree, but I would also say uh, that there's a lot of good stuff happening uh, right now. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want to generalize because I don't think that's fair. I think some parents who uh, normally uh, were not with their children because they were working as they needed to uh, are now not as well equipped at home to deal with various things. I, I certainly appreciate that. But, you know, there is a lot of, I think, social interaction happening with children that may not have uh, been happening in, in the past uh, with family members, as an example. So I, I wouldn't say that all is bad. Certainly, uh, I'm, I, you know, I, we all understand that uh, there are some holes that are going to appear in terms of reading, writing, and arithmetic, as it were. But I think that uh, there can certainly be upsides. And I would say that um, while we are uh, socially... Um, distancing, we should be careful that we are not socially isolating. And those things are not mutually uh, exclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, we, can, uh, we can absolutely so, uh, not socially isolate uh, and yet remain socially distant. Uh, there are ways of interacting with people, and we should. Uh, you, online interactions, that are some of the, which are appropriate, uh, and even interacting with people from a safe distance, etc., 
we have to make best efforts to cultivate those activities because they are fundamentally important uh, for us as a society, but also even, as you mentioned, for brain development. Will there be a decline in the measurable uh, markers of achievement? Yes, of course there will be. doesn't have to be. I mean, kids can certainly, um, you know, continue working at home, and uh, I think schools and uh, parents are making best efforts right now. How effective that will be, we don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that there is, on the, there is an upside great value to this interaction that's been maybe even fostered by the, the changes that we're all experiencing. We can, if anything, we have certainly proven that we are malleable and adaptable. And I think um, in many ways we're going to miss some of the things, absolutely for sure, that have gone through this time. Now, with, you know, continuing along this line of, of the world sort of turned on its ear, what would you say, what would be your advice for a healthy way to approach this situation. You know, we've got people who are looking for uh, conspiracies. We've got people who are tr trying to really get down deep and is this the right way to go? Do you have an overall healthy approach that we can take to dealing with this situation? Absolutely. Oh, well, I, I believe so. I mean, I, I believe it's a healthy approach. And I mean, I'm an end of one. And I'll tell you what seems to be working for me. First, as it relates to the, the conspiracy ideas, I would simply uh, ask yourself, why does it matter? How will it help you? I mean, was it made in a laboratory in North Carolina or China? Uh, was it made with, uh, obviously, you know, bad intent, etc.? cetera? Uh, you can fan the flames of that all day long. How does it help you? It does nothing but actually... Uh, hurt you because then what develops once you start to buy into that is blaming how it happened and then uh, wanting to get back and having you know basically fear that somebody constructed this scenario to hurt you. Uh, you know there are plenty of people who want to spend their day engaging in this. I think it's probably not a good thing to do because it doesn't help you. How does it help you day to day in terms of navigating uh, those choices to keep yourself healthy? So. Uh, I, I'm not interested. Uh, I, I guess there are people who need to know this, maybe from a military perspective or who knows from what perspective, but I'm much more interested in thinking about what we can do, A, to resist infection, and B, should we get uh, infected, what can help us in terms of having the very best possible outcome? So, I mean, I don't need to rehash all of the ways to keep from getting uh, infected. We all, I think, uh, understand the various things that are recommended. Uh, what we're seeing at the time you and I are chatting today is that there's been an incredible relaxation of what we know to be the best way to limit the spread of this disease, but it's being relaxed. Why? Uh, who knows? We know that right now, again, uh, at this time when you and I are chatting, that the rates of new infection are increasing generally on a global scale, as is the death rate. So of all the times to back down, uh, now is not the time. But it's quite likely that most of the listeners of our time together today uh, will become infected with this virus. It's been estimated that anywhere between 60 to 80% of the world's population will, at, will ultimately be infected with this this uh, COVID-19 virus. 
That said, what happens next? Do you have a good outcome or a bad outcome? In general, chances are you're going to have a good outcome. Uh, and that's certainly encouraging. Those who have a bad outcome uh, are uh, uh, chronologically and likely biologically old-er, uh, but also, uh, which is probably nothing you have a huge amount of control of over. You cannot control your chronological age. To some degree, you can control your biological age. If we had time, we could talk about that. But the other factors that tend to enhance your risk of a bad outcome include uh, underlying coronary artery disease, underlying uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, certainly uh, respiratory uh, diseases as well, and obesity uh, overweight. So these are factors over which we do have control. These are all related to disruption of immune function and one of the key things that immune function does, aside from help limit our risk for bad viral uh, infection, is these are inflammatory disorders. We spoke about that uh, earlier. The biggest mechanism in terms of threatening us uh, in terms of COVID-19 uh, infection is this overwhelming inflammatory event that occurs called the cytokine storm. Basically, that's what tends to put people into the grave, and we increase our risk of that cytokine storm when we choose lifestyle uh, issues that relate to higher risk for overweight, uh, type 2 diabetes. We talked about it earlier in the context of Alzheimer's, uh, coronary artery disease, another inflammatory issue. So it really interestingly re does relate back to our lifestyle choices again you know, in North America, we tend to uh, live our lives however we choose, and uh, then when we have a problem, there's always a fix for it. When we uh, have a, a heart attack, we'll take blood thinners. We have uh, problems with breathing, we can take inhalers, on and on. But now it finally caught up to us. Now <laughs> underlying conditions pave the way for bad outcome here, and we don't have a quick pharmaceutical fix for it. So suddenly, it's like the game Musical Chairs and the music stop. There are a lot of people that are going to be left standing on this one. Uh, so we can immediately enhance uh, how our immune systems work. We can rejuvenate our immunity by doing simple things. For example, periodic fasting, not eating for 24 to 36 hours, a time-restricted eating, eating uh, only during eight-hour period and not eating for 16 hours on a daily basis. There are a variety of things that we can do that improve immune function, that regulate our immunity. So it's not as if we have to be passive bystanders here and simply hope for the best. The, the film director James Cameron famously said that uh, hope uh, is not a strategy, and I would agree with that here. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we can be proactive right now and engage in activities that will help us towards a better outcome when or if, but likely when, we become infected. It's all about tending your own garden, isn't it? I mean, we know the right choices that need to be made. And for whatever reason, many of us don't make those choices. And this disease has, you know, could be the great equalizer. So um, it's, it's, we've come full circle, really, haven't we, with it all? Um, we talked about the brain and we talked about the gut and, and overall we're talking about taking care and uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a profound thing yet it's these changes in our lifestyle can, can influence um, 
you know, are influential on the, our, our whole system. So again, and not just taking apart the brain, but the whole system. Dr. Pomoda, I, I greatly, I would love to get into biological aging, but this is a whole other show. And I know you're a busy person and I really do appreciate the time that you've taken uh, with us. And um, everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.